Aloha Warriors, Joshua Loya, a.k.a. Joshua the Jedi, the aspiring servant warrior I have with me. Um, I, I'm actually really excited about this conversation. I have uh, Colonel Robert Redding, and uh, he's a veteran. Uh, how, how long are you still active, or uh, have you since Not left the military? retired last year. Oh, congratulations. How, long, how many years was that then for you? Well, a total of 33. I enlisted in the reserves while I was still in college, and then... Uh, Got commissioned as lieutenant in 1990, and then uh, uh, ended up last year. Yes, and you've been, <laughs> of all the times to kind of join, you, I don't know if there's anything easy about the military, but just as things were kind of, were you planning on staying in as long, or did uh, first half, couple decades of this uh, particular century kind of keep you in there longer than you had expected? Well, uh, definitely, you know, after uh, September 11, 2001, you know, the world changed for everybody, including everybody wearing a uniform. And uh, and so uh, all all things before that, I kind of see as preparation and all things after that were kind of, uh, you know, execution, making things happen. Sure. And for Claire, so you, you started with the reserves and then... Um Obviously, you were over in uh, Afghanistan. At least, in fact, most of your your posts have been about your experiences over in Afghanistan. Sure. Um, what for? For again, total civilian. I live in a military town. I was blind before I would have been old enough to serve. Uh, though I like to think that I would have at least given it a shot. For those of us not in the know, what's uh, like, uh, you, you stayed with the army the whole time, uh, army reserves, and then full into the the army after that, or? Well, so I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll explain it. So uh, I um, grew up without a whole lot of means, and so when I was in university at uh, Texas A and M, I uh, got to a point where uh, I needed some money. I already knew that I was on track for at least uh, beginning uh, in the military, and uh, and so I chose to join the Army Reserves, which then and still does just like the army national guard does uh gives you some great opportunities to include a part-time job that pays some money but also a form of the gi bill that gives you money for school and so i did that in uh, 1987 uh, kind of midway through college as an enlisted guy so you come in as a private you just sign up they give you a job and then um, i took the opportunities to take the training so basic training like any boot camp uh, you go through one summer. Uh, there's an option to do it in the summer to so not have to take college off. So first summer, I went to basic training. Second summer, I went to some advanced training for nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare. And then you're trained uh, as an enlisted guy, so as a private. And then uh, I served in that capacity until I got to advanced levels of reserve officer training corps at school on the way to being an officer. And uh, in 1990, after completing all the training in university, I uh, was commissioned as a second lieutenant, uh, which uh, uh, definitely different roles and responsibilities than being a private. I would imagine because <laughs> you got uh, people that are looking to you to make sure they, they know what to do and to have some guidelines on, on uh, where to go. Sure. And, you know, one of the things that – and we'll, we'll get there as we, as we go, but one of the things that I thought was really, really cool about your posts, the few that I read – and why I was particularly interested in having you on is, um, it, you know, there is a big gap, you know, especially for um, those of us who never served. Um, and then also, too, you know, you know, I'm 40. I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, you know, older than some and younger than 
than a lot. I don't know where I fit in with that, but you know, I remember I was not quite 23 during the time of most of the posts that, of yours that I read. Mm-hmm. And, and so even having the context, you know, we have a lot of uh, people now who they grew, they, some of them were born after September 11th for that matter, and just really have no idea. You know, there's been a lot of rhetoric back and forth about what it was like. And, and I think it's, there's nothing like getting that primary source. Sure. Um, and, and, and what's neat is your, uh, I, I love the, the email thread format that you have to, to a bunch of your posts that people get to see real time, you know, your family's responses. And, and, uh, I, I'm also a big fan of the jungle book. So I love uh-huh. your, your aliases that you use. Uh-huh. It. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, um, before nine 11, you know, I was a regular national guardsman. And so I had a civilian job doing digital mapping. Uh, I was a consultant. I worked, uh, installing these systems that make power companies be able to see all their assets and and use them uh and then part-time i was a a, a national guardsman which means usually one weekend a month in some period during the summer two or three weeks you know the unit would train and so uh the unit that uh, i was in uh for the four or five years before i uh before this afghanistan before 9-11 I uh, was a, a special forces battalion. So maybe news to everyone that pretty much any kind of unit you can find in the regular army, you can find in the reserves and the national guard, which I mean, for the purpose of this conversation, they're pretty much synonymous. The res- army reserves and the army national guard, essentially it's reservists who do something else for a civilian job. And then, uh, as a part-time, but fully professional, uh, Activity, they, you know, the, you do this army training and prepare to support the nation whenever they need a military force. And so I've been in this uh, special forces battalion uh, and had done a lot of stuff. The unit was oriented on training in the Pacific, the Pacific Rim. So a lot of Korea, Thailand, and, and places like that. And so the, the, the purpose of the training was always set up to, to do what special forces does, which is not necessarily just kicking in doors and blowing stuff up. But uh, engaging with uh, the foreign militaries in foreign situations and getting you know missions done for the good of you know whatever the the, the scenario is. So, for example, in uh, Korea, we used to do training missions where our special forces teams would link up with Korean special forces teams, and they practiced and rehearsed defending against uh, you know a North Korean incursion into South Korea. So all those experiences and training and dealing with any uh, foreign military and other foreign cultures just builds on itself in experience. And mm-hmm. so, you know, this unit I was in, nobody ever expected to go to Afghanistan. Nobody ever expected to do anything except for, you know, maybe the big one in Korea, which may or may not ever happen or, or whatever. But if you recall, after the wall fell, uh, the Berlin Wall, that is, you know, we had enjoyed what we thought was this big period of peace you know had a little bit of stuff going on in the balkans and but we really never expected that this was going to you know changed everything (laughs) yeah so so we had a lot of preparation a lot of folks did a lot of put a lot of energy into being very good even as a reservist uh uh, soldiers and this particular unit special forces they're fully qualified green berets i was not that i got qualified as a civil affairs officer and did some different jobs in that unit but it all was the same it was going someplace engaging with the foreign military to, to make them better 
uh, and to build them up uh, as one of the big missions for special forces. Well, certainly uh, not easy stuff. <laughs> There's probably nothing easy about any of the training you had over the course of your, your career, I'm sure. Well, and the training is challenging, but also the selection of people and making sure that people are doing the right things. And, you know, one of the things I always like to talk about is that, the, you know, I'm a product. Uh, the U.S. Army is a values-based organization. You know, we, uh, you know, contrary to what Hollywood might say or or what uh, others may write, you know, the, the, the Army values, which are, Loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, and courage. Those are things we really talk about and say, hey, man, you know, uh, you know, you have a duty to do this thing or, you know, where's your loyalty to the to the U.S. Constitution? Uh, and so so all those things come together and, and you know, being part of a team and part of a unit, uh, the whole preparation phase in the 90s that I went through with uh, with this unit, you know, really paid off. Uh yeah, during our experiences in Afghanistan in 2002. Yeah, and you know, I, I'm, I'm, it's almost passe to say it, but if you know, go, I, I'll, I'll still say it out of my way, I, and I mean it genuinely. Thank you for your service and through all the time you put in, because I, I think it's something people pass out just casually and they don't mean it. Well, um, it's interesting so. you say that because uh, you know, I, I haven't been in uniform, and I was part time before this. But to, because sure. of the thing, way things turned out, I ended up being active duty, but in the National Guard. So I wear uniform a lot. At least I did until last year. And yeah, a lot of people, there's a lot of Americans are very grateful, and it's very easy when people are, are really regularly telling you that to be flippant about it. And I always really try to make the point to say, you, you know, not just thank you, or glad. You know, I, I, I'm happy to have done it because. Not everybody can be in a position to serve, and I had the the impetus in the beginning of my career to do it, to want to do it, and I had some talents that people appreciated and put me in places to get the experience and be in, you know, in places of responsibility to be able to do what was expected of me, and so so that's you know that's kind of America, right? I mean, we have people who have different talents, and and people gravitate toward different um, you know careers and opportunities and. Uh, I, I'm glad to have done it, you know, and it worked out for me because, uh, you know, it doesn't work out for everybody for a lot of reasons. Uh, and it's hard and it, it's not just challenges for me, but my family and friends, but, uh, I'm, I'm glad to have done it. Excellent. Um, I, I am really curious, uh, and, and admittedly, I haven't read that many of your posts, um, but I've had re- read a few and I did enjoy them particularly. Uh, what's the origin of the, the fly fishing in Afghanistan. Uh, so there's, <laughs> well, there's obviously a story there. Well, I like to fish. And so, uh, my dad brought me up fishing. He was, a uh, a policeman when I was growing up, uh, and, uh, did a bunch of other stuff after he stopped being a policeman, but he always fished and he would always take us as kids fishing. I got a brother and a sister and my mom, we would go fishing and do whatever. So that's been part of my life being an outdoorsman. And so, uh, at some point I moved to Colorado from Texas where I'm originally from and I uh, got into fly fishing. And so in the summer of 2002, when we knew that we were going to Afghanistan, uh, I, uh, being the, uh, savvy outdoorsman <laughs> knew that there was fishing to be done in Afghanistan. So I slipped in a fly rod, uh, to my, uh, my gear and, uh, brought it with me and had opportunity there to, to slip in a little fishing and just that little, I guess, self-exposed eccentricity, I just kind of, the title of it just kind of brings out the, the sure. whole theme of my, my set of stories, which is 
you know, you went fishing in Afghanistan. Well, sure. Uh, why not? And, uh, you know, they'll have a lot of other different stories, which are like, wow, that really happened. I said, well, sure. It just happened. So, so that's just kind of a catch all kind of, uh, attention getter that just kind of says, huh, wow, that must be something interesting going on there. Well, and, and again, I, I I've had a lot of you know friends and, and family members that have been in the military. So my understanding is all secondhand. Um, but one of the things, a couple of the the guys that I've talked to that have been over that, that it's, it was really important to find something to ground yourself that was healthy, you know, that, that something like fishing or reading or finding something that wasn't going to send you down sort of a weird path. Cause you want to maintain a healthy headspace while you're, you're serving over there. Sure. I'd say that's, that's a great point because one of the things that we, we did not have the luxury of early on was, you know, we were like the second unit the second set of units. There was no infrastructure for, for recreation or any of that kind of well, stuff. Well, certainly not that, but we didn't have yeah. also the experience as much of those who were coming back to tell mm-hmm. us what to expect. And so, so, so we were doing a lot of discovery learning and, and that's not just at a, at a group level, but as an individual level, I did sure. not understand the changes that I was going to go through based on what we was, what I was going through and what I was going to see and what I was going to do. Um, and so, and so, while I didn't fish a lot, I did do a lot of reading. I did do a lot of, uh, you know, physical fitness as much as I could. Um, and and, uh, but what I did, I had the fortune of doing when I was there was just getting out and meeting a lot of interesting and different people. And that was just the nature of the job that I have, which I can talk about in a little bit. But uh, you definitely have to find some grounding uh, because because you are out of your your element when you deploy. You're just in a different place, state of mind, uh, disoriented. And that's where the Army's pretty good about training you. And if you fall back on your training, that gets you most of the way there. And then if you have a good team, that takes you the rest of the way. Uh, that, that teamwork, I, I think uh, a lot of people can, Any again, not the same, but, and I'll probably say that a bunch, but you know, anybody who's been in, uh, you know, real high level sports or any kind of, you know, objective, they can at least get a glimpse of that. I think, you know, when you have somebody, that well, you I would say it's on. the same, I, you know, teamwork, you, you know, and, you don't think that's, there's a lot of difference between say like being on a football team versus being in combat other than somebody shooting at you. No, I think it's very similar. I think it's very similar. The reason why is because you got uh, this, you first, you have people, right? So people are people. Sure. And people bring with them, but the good and the bad and, and, and the relationships that you develop, along with what you bring to the table and your your ability to integrate and, and for a common purpose, get something done, I think it's very similar. And, and, and I've actually talked about this with my wife who used to work for uh, a ski manufacturing company called Volant that had uh, a lot of former Olympic quality skiers working there. And she always would mention, you know, these guys think on a different level. They act on a different mm-hmm. level. Uh, and the same thing happens with high performing soldiers, right? So I was in a pretty good unit, special forces unit, attract a lot of really good. Yeah, people. that's no joke. But there are units that do much more interesting things, and people who do uh, other, you know, special things beyond what a regular special forces unit would do. And they they are very skilled people who are very focused uh, and very good at building teams and knowing and getting results. And I, so I think I, I would not discount that correlation at all. I always try to be real hesitant, you know, because I, I think people get flippant when making life comparisons, you know, uh, between 
civilian life and the military life. And there's a lot of overlap because you're people. And sure. I think, and, and feel free to what we can kind of, in a second here, we can get into some of the experiences you had specifically, but uh, I, I think just not understanding the gravity of the consequences of your decisions. Sure. You know, like if, if, if you don't uh, block for your quarterback and you know, you're, you're on that offensive line. Um, yeah. He might get hurt, but it doesn't have the same uh, ripple effect, uh, you know, as opposed to at least that's my perception. You know, there's not as much on the line. There's definitely something on the line, but sure. the, the stakes are way higher <laughs> in sure. what you well, were doing. And it's interesting because I, I mean, I, I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, and just to continue on that discussion about the connection between how teams work and how people interact, um, you know, the, the, the preparation that you get from the U.S. military is the best in the world. And the U.S. Army is right there making sure most of the time uh, that you get everything you need to get ready to do what you need to do. What I found out is actually that we sometimes just suck less than the other side. <laughs> and that difference is what makes makes you successful on the battlefield or in whatever situation that you're going to. I mean, I really, really mean that. And no, that, I, that I think there's there's truth to that for absolutely. <laughs> so, so the um, you know the ability to to have all, all this training, but at some point, you know, even with some of this excellent training you get, you know, there's there's uh, training centers that the Army has, which they have a fully resourced battlefield with a full full-time enemy force that you go to and they run you through the ringer in a training exercise over a couple of weeks. Uh, one of them's in Louisiana, the one's in California, and there's another one in Germany. And you get there and they get they create this training effect where you your mind is in the game and that it mm. brings you up and you learn a whole lot from that stress and everything. But there's nothing like going out into a place like Afghanistan and you're there with one or two other people and there's no coach looking to see what you're doing. There's right. nobody seeing you're doing this wrong or right. You could be doing it wrong and you may be just lucky. Um, but there's that realization that says, wow, I, I, I can, you know, I, I'm now falling back on my training knowledge and experience because it's me doing this job and there's nobody else telling me what to do here. That's a, that's a very humbling experience. Yeah, um, in my my own competition experience, I, I I can relate to that a little bit. There's a difference between me preparing for surf competitions and then, oh, now I'm wearing the red, white, and blue, and people are or representing the red, white, and blue, and people are expecting me to bring my country home a medal. Yep. That's a very different situation. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, I I gotta figure. You were talking about how you were preparing to, you know, Pacific Rim kind of stuff, mostly Korea and, and things like that going yeah. in, and, and you weren't expecting to go to the Middle East. How uh, how big of a culture shock was it when you went over? That's the one thing I think a lot of people would expect you'd run into because well, you interacted with the civilian population over there quite a bit too. Sure. So I'll just talk about my job a little bit. So, so um, one of the specialties in the Army and the other services have it so also is uh, civil affairs. And this particular job is uh, to to be the person who is primarily responsible for engaging with the civilian population for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's just to buy some things, like finding you know yeah, a you, vendor for something. You're trying to find trucks, I think, in one of the articles. I was trying to find trucks once, right? <laughs> uh, sometimes it's managing relationships for your commander. Like one of the things we had going on around our 
our base um, was we had a lot of children who were running around. And, and again, just to describe the time in Afghanistan, 2002, 2003, uh, very early on, uh, there's no Iraq yet, right? And so it's just mm-hmm. Americans. And we had had very a very light footprint in Afghanistan before we got there. you know. And, and at the time, there was less than 10,000 there. And then we thought that was a whole lot. But most of them were staying up in one base called Bagram up in the north of the country. Uh, and then most of the special forces were in a team, so 12 to 15 guys with some right. uh, augmentation. It's kind of spread out all over the country. And so nobody saw Americans a lot. So the, so they were still – Afghans were still kind of mystified by us. Uh, the, the Afghan government was still being formed. They'd had an initial meeting called the Loya Jirga, which was to set the conditions for the formation of the government, but it hadn't fully formed. And so what happened is there's a lot of gray areas. And in that gray, uh, just have some very – disparate things happening. So, mm. so part of that around us was people were having normal lives. I mean, there was not a lot of, uh, walking outside the wire and seeing a threat, but regularly at night we would get rocketed from someplace, you know, two or three kilometers away, five kilometers away, uh, with a particular kind of rocket was, which is pretty common, uh, from the old Soviet times. Uh, and so Le- leftover from the exchange with the Mujahideen yeah, and whatnot. Yep, right. Yep. And so, 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 you know, around us, we have uh, an environment uh, where we need to engage with the people because we're in this base kind of, uh, and we're, our base was on the east side of Kabul. So it was kind of, for lack of a better term, kind of suburban Kabul. So there's towns, a little bit of town and village around us and some, some open space, uh, farmland and what have you. So kind of mixed, mixed use, but there's people there and you have to engage with the people on a daily basis. And one of the things we, we noticed is that uh, uh, regularly kids were coming and running up to when they saw our vehicles. And a lot of times we were in civilian vehicles, so it was kind of hard to see until you got close. So kids would come running up, running up to us. And uh, because kids, Americans being the same, no matter whether it's World War II or now, we're always throwing candy or something like that. To sure. Kids, we yeah, I have a, some veteran friends that did the same thing. Yeah. When they were so what two. we noticed, though, is that some of the kids – we're running up to our vehicles with plastic toy guns and pointing them at us. Oh, wow. And so, so, you know, sometimes it's pretty obvious, right? It's a little red. Sure. But if you don't, if it's not obvious, it's too realistic or sometimes it's not right. So you have even a smaller black plastic AK 47 with a 10 year old proportionally looks like a guy drawn down on you. And we had a bunch of, we had several incidents where guys almost killed kids who ran up to them. Wow. And so, so the commander said to me, "Hey, get on this problem and see what right. you so can do." Right. So the parents know not to have their kids go out and do that. And- well, so I mean, kids run wild in, in Afghanistan like they do sure. in other places. So sure. kids are kids. Right. So we started a program close to us to trade balls for toy guns. So, so we went and out in the economy with some of our operational funds and bought a bunch of soccer balls, and we would have trade-in events. Uh, where kids could bring their plastic guns and we'd give them a ball. And that worked for a while. It actually worked quite well, quite well around us. But that's the kind of problem solving that, mm. you know, again, there's no coach there telling you, hey, you need to, you know, here's how you solve this problem. You, you base it on your experience and your good ideas and bounce it off your team and say, hey, what are we going to do here? Uh, and so we, you know, we several times went around and we obviously talked to parents and we'd have a little a thing. And uh, but we'd, uh, you know. We had several events where we just flat out just traded one for one guns, plastic guns for, uh, and gave them a ball. 
just so they would not have the guns to come up and, and right. And it, it's still probably added to their lives too. Cause you get a cup, you get a ball and you get a bunch of kids that can start having that release out. I mean, I don't know what life was like in terms of difficulty for those kids over there, but uh, Afghanistan is pretty austere. You know, uh, you look at the villages around us and, uh, you know, open sewers, uh, folks using outhouses, uh, a little bit of infrastructure, electricity, but most people are using generators, mud, literally mud houses made out of mud block. Wow. Uh, people are not stupid. People are smart like they are anywhere. People are educated, but it's just a different level of resourcing. Well, the infrastructure isn't there. I mean, I don't care how smart you are if you can't get a line of electricity to your house. Exactly. That's, you know, that that's Or it was there anybody. and stolen and sold, which is what happened around us also. A lot of theft. Well, you know, people are, you know, people in I desperate, desperate times, so you kind of so do different things, right? Somebody had taken down the high tension power lines and sold them for scrap. <laughs> <laughs> so then there's no electricity, right? So, uh, but somebody got a small gain from it. But uh, anyway, it's just one story about, so about, again, civil affairs. So, so, you know, interacting with the local population, interacting with the government. So a lot of things I did, I would go into town and 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 uh, make relationships with uh, some of the ministry level folks, but also some of the uh, um, local, like local towns or municipality villages. Uh, I had a lot of overlap with some of the other folks who worked on protecting us. You know, part of the unit was uh, we call them counterintelligence, but they're but they're also really kind of security guys. So they're kind of just kind of rooting around out there looking for bad guys who are looking to do harm to us. And so they made relationships with the police. We get information from the police and, and, uh, you know, do some other interesting things with, uh, you know, with the police because we needed them because if we're, you know, we're not, it's a sovereign country. So even though right, you want to respect the, the, there, the country right? that's there, cooperate with them. Right. Right. But the, you know, the, the police have their own issues and, and, uh, you know, one of the things we had an issue with close to our base, we had a couple of, uh, ranges. So weapons ranges that we managed and as part of our mission to train that new Afghan national army right. we're regularly out there bringing in new Afghan recruits and helping train them. Well, one of the resources that you don't recognize as an American, but clearly is recognizable in Afghan, is spent shell casings. So that brass has value, and we as sure. Americans would just toss it, that yeah, away or do something sure. with it. We don't even think there's, about it over here. There's kids lined up to come get it on the range, oh, right? Wow. And so, so we're going to talk about that in a minute about one of the accidents we have. But oh, there's wow. kids and there's there's people to be managed all over the place. And so one of the things we did. Um, <laughs> on our base attached to our, our unit was a psychological operations unit. It's a small team. Sure. They specialize in providing information. And PSYOPs is not about lying. It's about shaping information. Yeah, that, that's actually a mis, misnomer. I'm, I'm actually glad you I would appreciate you expanding on that just sure. a tiny bit. Because, you know, me as a civilian, I, I, I'll be vague. I have somebody within my sphere who did PSYOPs uh-huh. over there. Uh-huh. And until... He kind of broke it down a little bit. Right. You know, that's what you think of. You think of, you know, propaganda and misinformation purposely to kind of, that's what people think of anyway. Sure. At least certainly what I thought of. Well, certainly what, in the military and a military environment, PSYOPs is about providing shaping information. Invariably, it's the truth. Sometimes it might be deception, uh, but it's all about uh, providing good information for, for, for folks to shape their opinion so that the military operation in play can be done. So in this case, uh, what we did uh, is uh, – so I, 
sometimes I'll say flippant things about Afghans. I just want to say up front, I love Afghan people, the most hospitable, loving people that you would ever meet. I love Afghan people. Now, they're fierce people. But but they're good folks. And if yeah, you're I, I used side, to jujitsu with a guy whose family was was uh, from Afghanistan, and uh, he was one of the kindest guys I ever met. But absolutely. he used to mess me up on the mat constantly. <laughs> give you give you the shirt off their back. So, but uh, so I just uh, so now I caveated that there's some interesting things that are different from America. So sure. So so Afghans are a somewhat superstitious people, and so they believe as uh, is related through Islam. Uh, there are people that believe in the uh, jinn, which is genies, right? And so, so one of the things we conceptualized and did was essentially to take the PSYOP team and take some recordings like from those 70s. I don't know if you – those records that you could play as like uh, uh, like the Haunted House uh, Oh, well, okay. Yeah, yeah. Like no, I'm, I'm, I'm a big uh, kind of like uh, cheesy monster movie guy. I love like really – so, like the old uh, Bella Lugosi and stuff yeah, like that. For yeah, sure. yeah. So we had the PSYOPs guys yeah. go out at night and play recordings of haunted houses and ghost sounds to haunt the range. <laughs> but I guess so, it worked. It kept people away. Yeah, well, <laughs> it kind of worked for a little while. But uh, um, anyway, so so but we had tried to get the police to help us. And they're like, yeah, oh, you got to take care of that yourself unless you're going to pay me to have a policeman there. And it's like, oh, okay, whatever. Mm-hmm. But so we we're just trying to do these interesting Right, because you don't want anybody so, to get hurt. Somebody right, to try exactly. to scavenge so, for, for sh- casings. and Yeah. And then, uh, and then the other thing we did again, our main mission was training the Afghan National Army. And so, so the government's providing uh, groups of people, and there's a whole gray area there because the government is a loose term at the time. There was a central government, but really it only can take con- controlled Kabul, and the rest of Afghanistan was controlled by warlords who had been in power since uh, the Soviet times, and many of those. We had actually funded America had funded to fight the Soviets, and just kind of carried over. 1992 Civil War kicks off in Afghanistan. They're all fighting each other. Well, the Civil War is over because they all got beat by the Taliban. There's one last group called the Northern Alliance, uh, but but the Northern Alliance can't control the whole country, so they got to sure. get these loyalties, and that's a very Afghan thing to do, is to get and maintain loyalties for the purpose of the time now, and so. Uh, so different lore lords are sending their people to be part of the Afghan army. We're training them to be, you know, part of the loyalty of the government. They're like, well, we're not so sure. Uh, Did you actually have to? You'd have some people coming in. You were kind of, hmm, maybe we should sure. train. Yeah, this there guy. was definitely a screening process, and uh, uh, you know, we we did the best we could. Um, but uh, and so so around us there was a compound that actually had um, it was run by. Uh, a warlord and we had to interact with him and we weren't sure of his loyalties. He was loyal to the government supposedly. And, you know, but, uh, uh, prior to us, the one unit that had been there before us had got in a gunfight with his guards at a gate one day because they made a mistake of at the, at the, his compound, which our, the guys had business at because it was part of the place that, uh, they were going to build barracks for the new army. Um, right. they guards drew down on special forces guys who pulled up and well, that was the last mistake they ever made because they, they killed. So there's all kinds right. of, well, I, would, I don't certainly don't blame them. Somebody draws down on you. What, sure, what do you expect right. somebody's going to do? Right. Well, they, they learned the lesson the hard way. And, but, uh, but so, so the complexity of that, so as a civil affairs guys, I'm, I'm all over the place. I'm just a staff officer. And I help and advise special forces guys, which are very capable, but they're more, they got their own mission to do. So I'm advising them on, 
you know, here's where you can buy wood in town. Uh, here's where you can buy stoves. Here's this particular, uh, you know, set of folks. And, and just to wrap that up, here's some relationships that I've made that might be able to help you to do your mission. And so one of the very uh, robust um, uh, groups in town and in Kabul at the time, say robust group, it's a, a robust set of uh, uh, organizations are non-governmental organizations, international organizations that do relief and development. Sure. And as a civil affairs guy, that's one of our, our core um, competencies is to find those folks, engage them, and then see where we have overlapping um, uh, Common objectives, objectives. Yeah. And, and, and see if we can find some cooperation. So one of the things I was able to do uh, was to uh, capitalize on actually a relationship that our chaplain had made uh, in Colorado Springs prior to us leaving with an organization that uh, uh, was a faith-based uh, relief organization. It's called Morning Star Development um, that uh, actually cooperated with us and and, and uh, was able to help us. Uh, again, in the end, we're trying to make this capable force uh, army, an Afghan National Army, be legitimate in the eyes of Afghan people. We, you know, in the end, we're able to team up with some of these folks to have uh, events where we'd have a mobile medical clinic for the day. And, it, and for all intents and purposes, it looked like the Afghan National Army was running it. But behind the strings, we're helping train them and show them how to do it. Sure. And providing it's the It's rapport building with the, the right. Afghan civilians. And the right? NGO is there because they have some resources that we didn't have. And so, so there's a lot of things that, uh, as a civil affairs guy, that uh, I would, had my hands in a lot of stuff. So bottom line is I'm all over town all over Kabul, meeting with a lot of different folks, helping folks out do different things, uh, and making a lot of relationships that, that uh, you know, our commander could use and the teams could use to do whatever missions to get done that we need to get done. You mentioned, uh, and I, I, I don't know how frequently he shows up, but you mentioned uh, this chaplain. I don't know if this is the same unconventional chaplain i'm, I'm curious i'm not gonna ask you to give you uh give up his identity but no he's out there why did him say andy Meriden. he's out there so okay. you can take that link and find the unconventional right. chaplain yeah um but uh what what's the origin of the unconventional chaplain moniker because there's again there's a story there i'm sure sure yeah so so uh you know one of the interesting things that happened uh of course uh this is after 9-11 after Afghanistan has fallen and has supposedly become a place that's on its way to being fully peaceful, you know, this deployment, those of us who trained and, and wanted to, be, to serve saw this as a, wow, this is something we really want to be a part of. And so, so um, uh, I actually was in another unit and the commander at the time had asked me to come back for the deployment. Uh, and the same thing happened to Andy Meriden. Andy Meriden uh, is a chaplain in the Colorado National Guard who uh, had been, I think, out of aviation, but uh, had been invited to be part of this uh, this deployment. And Andy uh, did what good chaplains do everywhere, which is to to find ways to to serve the soldiers that are with them. But in Afghanistan, that kind of that kind of went beyond that. And and there's some events mm-hmm. that happened. Uh, certainly, one story I need to tell about the ranges that uh, before it's all over with. Oh right, yeah, we were talking about that. Right. Yeah, that uh, that uh, you know, Andy was a clear part of. One, making sure the mission happened, but two, providing some chaplaincy, not only for us, but for uh, the local folks uh, and helping make amends for, for something that happened. So, uh, well, maybe it's a good time to talk about what yeah, happened. Yeah, 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 yeah please, because so, all, yeah, so, all the anticipation has, has been building. Yeah, so, <laughs> so uh, you know, the um, 
uh, you know, the nature of the business was that uh, an operational deployment uh, detachment alpha A team, special forces A team, got assigned to to uh, a particular battalion. They would take it through a you know eight plus week long training regimen. With the, at the end, it would you know have a graduation, and you have a fully formed Afghan National Army battalion of six or seven hundred folks ready to go fight the war. So along the way, uh, the uh, uh, the units are going and doing more and more complex training and. Uh, uh, that included doing uh, maneuver and shooting. And you'll, if you talk to anybody in the military, the most complex thing that we ever do is with real bullets, and we're really moving, and we have really people doing stuff that you normally do on the battlefield. That full right. mission profile. And so uh, this particular day out on the the ranges, um, ODA got its unit there. Unit has is providing. Uh, a unit that's going to maneuver, so infantry who are going to uh, go to an objective and seize it. Uh, in this case, it's a it's a, a ruined uh, mud building that's at the backstop of a. It's visualized kind of a a hilly range behind them. It's all sandy and dusty, okay, uh, and and brown and, uh, and and kind of on a rise. You know, facing that, uh, there's a support position, maybe you know, six or seven hundred meters away. Uh, with some heavy weapons uh, to include uh, some recoilless rifles, which is kind of almost like a cannon, and mortars, which are kind of like artillery or cannons. Um, okay. And uh, so as the, the exercise is to uh, provide support, met fire support, while this unit is maneuvering. And so this is a very common task for, for uh, combat arms units. Uh, the, the, the fires are placed onto the objective to keep the head down. Uh, while the other units get close so they can close with them and destroy the enemy. So that's what's happening here. We're training them how to do it. Well, so if you visualize this this like any other hill, hilly kind of linear range, uh, I start in this case the mountain range or the hills to kind of backstop the range, uh, there's little valleys and saddles and terrain uh, that uh, that uh, are for this, this the hill complex that you can't always see what's there. Um, and so what, what, uh, had happened, uh, in the midst of this was that, the uh, another side story, one of the, <laughs> one of the things that kids would also look for on the range was, uh, this, uh, precious, uh, stone called, uh, lapis lazuli, which is, uh, you find in Afghanistan. So it's something that you can make money from. And, but anytime we were shooting some kind of heavy weapons afterwards, the kids would go and run out to where the shooting was done to see the disturbed earth and see if they could. Oh, get, right. Cause it'd get, be more exposed. Right. So they're going to go that, dig up where it got shot up. Okay. Uh, and go pick up some rocks and go sell it. So, uh, so unbeknownst to us on this day, <clears throat> uh, some children had come, over the top of the hill in a oh, in a no. blind spot, and gotten just behind where this um, mud building was, and they were hiding there, and they were waiting for when the shooting was to stop because they were going to come out and they wanted to be the first ones to get this lapis lazuli. So, so uh, in order because from the from the soldiers' side, so we have the special forces soldiers advising and coaching the Afghans. Afghans are shooting, they're maneuvering. And in order to be safe, you know, under normal conditions, you you always observe where your fire is going. 
Uh, but in order to be safer, the, the coaches, the American coaches, special forces soldiers are saying, hey, shoot long so we just don't have an accident. We don't want to drop rounds at our own guys. And so as they're walking these rounds back, as this company is advancing, uh, you know, under this under this hail of, uh, you know, uh, of a mortar fire, the mortar fire goes beyond the house and then it starts impacting where the kids are. Oh, so wow. so so the kids are immediately hit. Uh, and because they're kids, I mean, I say kids are teenagers and maybe nine or 10 years old. Um, some of them are immediately hit and disabled Well, they're kids. Right. And so they don't make the best choices and the bad choice that they made in the bad situation they're in was not to stand up and say that they were there. The kids who could, who could move went back the same hidden way that they had gotten there and went all the way back to their village. It probably took them 45 minutes or so to get back to their village. And said, hey, we got this thing going on. We have this bad thing going on. We need some help. So somebody's father, the first the the Afghan unit and the Americans know about it is right down the middle of a range comes a white sedan uh, screaming in and going to right where the impact area is. So right in the middle of the exercise. Well, it's somebody's parents, right? And so, um, so then, you know, everything's disclosed and then it's a mass casualty exercise and, and the um, – the uh, uh, unfortunate thing is that four of those children died. And, and you know, it's something that particularly the guys who were on the range that day and those who have had to deal with it um, carry with us because, you know, you, in, you're in war and warlike situations. You know, you, you, you do things and, and, and you realize, you, you, you understand that what you do um, You're more acutely impact. aware than the danger than yeah, but when the you see are. the effects of it, when you see yeah. the effects of what you've done, and it's not the way you wanted it to go, uh, it's a terrible thing. And so, so, so you know, um, I uh, was part part of that, and and was really part of trying to get. Um, hold on a second here. Yeah, no worries. So, so one of the things that that I are you there? Yeah, I'm still here. We're I'm sorry, good. I had to have a phone call. I thought I was turned off. No worries, off no worries. So, uh, so, so, so the thing that I did uh, was help manage the situation when it comes to the village. But where Andy came in is he took it to the next step. And so, so we had already had it. He and uh, another guy named uh, Diggs Brown, a guy named Captain Diggs, uh, who was with Andy doing some collateral things. They had already taken. It just happened to be, and you know. I don't believe in fate. So it was meant to be. They had already right. established a relationship with that village that this was, uh, uh, that the kids came from. And they were already in that place teaching English to the kids in the school there. I'm not sure it was the same kids. It probably was. Uh, but they but based probably on that, knew the kids. This probably, well, the, the, yeah. Well, based on that relationship, you know, they took it to, to the extra mile where this is where I like to make the difference about where National Guardsmen are. You know, the National Guardsmen do this because they want to. You know, it's not a right. it's not necessarily a career. It's a thing you want to do. And 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 Andy, you know, took it the extra mile that, that included incurring personal pain and 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 putting energy into something that he didn't necessarily have to do. But he really, you know, took it the extra mile to make sure that the the parents understood our position and there's some and culturally uh there's some things that you do in afghanistan i'll probably say it wrong but in Pashtun, i think it's called a maharmana and it's uh it's part of the culture where you have an official um 
uh, acknowledgement that something has happened and a mm-hmm. forgiveness. Uh, and so he managed that whole thing. Uh, and, and so, you know, right guy, right place, right time. Um, but, uh, you know, there's nothing that really good that came out of that. Um, it, it was, you know, it was friction on getting the mission done. Uh, but you know, it's one of those things in, in war and conflict that you're like, wow, that, that was horrible. We got to get past it though. We got to keep, keep, keep going mm-hmm. on with the mission. Well, and it's, it's fortunate for you, for you guys, I suppose. And for everyone involved, it sounds like that Andy was there because it, you can't make it, a, make that a good situation, but you can certainly make it not as bad as it could be. Well, and, and when you, I mean, and Andy's one example of just great talent that you'll find, you know, in a, in a, in a unit like this where you don't even know it's there until you need it. I mean, <laughs> another example of just crazy National Guard things, uh, it, we had this base that a lot of people were throwing resources at, but didn't necessarily, weren't necessarily coordinated. And, and so one of the things we had were these very large generators. Well, in a special forces battalion, there's no, you know, uh, high voltage electrical engineer, but right. it just happened that the detachment sergeant, or maybe it's the first <laughs> sergeant at the time, happened to With work for a power job company was... <laughs> in a civilian job and he had that thing running great. Right. And so That's when, awesome. when we got relieved, uh, you know, at the end of April, when, uh, we were April, 2003 or leaving the active duty unit that was coming back to relieve us. We're like, how are you guys doing all this stuff? We're like, well, we just know <laughs> we got people who know how to do that. So <laughs> anyway, so, so just to, to wrap up that, that whole accident thing, you know, yeah. uh, you know, war is terrible and you pull out guns and you just have to expect that uh, bad things are, are going to happen. You try to make it happen to whoever you think the bad guys at the time to get your mission done. Uh, but uh, you know, that, that uh, you know, in the story I write, the title of it is uh, little green boots because one of the kids um, that was killed had these uh, relatively cheap kind of Walmart, you know, three dollar rubber rain boots that they were they were uh, was he was wearing, and uh, that's the first thing I saw that the, the kids was that mm. uh, this this boot sticking up from underneath a blanket, uh, you know, they had taken the kids to our medical shed and our great doctors did the best they could, but they couldn't save them. Sure, um, but the, you know the, this the I think that's one of the, the important stories of you know, the details of war and conflict, you know, uh, one of the disconnects that we as Americans have with our professional, I'll just call our reservist professionals too, because they are, you know, uh, our professional military is that there's an expectation that you're just going to go do this and there's no consequences because you signed up for it. Mm. But, you know, there's real impacts on the people that do it, but there's also, you know, war is a terrible thing and I would not wish ever to have another war again. Now we have to be prepared to fight it if we want to keep being in America. Right. Uh, but but I, I, this is part of that you know who would have thought right kind of things that uh, uh, certainly is one of the uh, uh, the sadder stories. But I think one that needs to be told. Go yeah, uh, um, I, I think it's funny because I'm kind of doing my best to put myself in your your headspace when you're over there, and. You know, as I mentioned, I'm 40 now, so I kind of came of age, you know, that um, hit adulthood just before 9-11. And, um, you know, all through the 90s, 
yeah, okay, we had had the first Gulf War and we had had the, the stuff over in the Baltics, like you were saying, and, and, you know, some, I think there was a thing in Libya or something or whatever, but, you know, most Americans, and certainly I did as a teenager through most of the, the 90s, I didn't, like, I, I thought, figured, oh, we're past, we don't have wars anymore. Yeah. There's the, 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 like, we, we, you know, America had... Our, our last bad war, real bad war, was Vietnam. And everything else has just been kind of minor. It'll, it, we might have a couple of small conflicts, but it's not going to get big. That's the perception that I had. And, you know, I eventually, I moved from Northern California to, to San Diego in early 2003. And so I, I ended up meeting a whole bunch more military people. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of people stationed out here and, and whatnot. And uh, it, <laughs> I, I don't think... And I'm really glad you shared the story, as, as sad as it is, because I think that, you know, I grew up in a, an extremely liberal, very kind of over, like far left kind of town. I grew up in Santa Cruz. I always describe Santa Cruz as it makes Berkeley look like the Bible Belt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and there is this sort of thought that people who join the military like fighting, like killing. And clearly... You know, I'm sure you probably have an occasional person like that. They probably don't make it through the screening process too far, I suppose. But um, that you know, you're where you're willing to do the violence. You're you're willing and saying, okay, this is potentially a necessary course of action. Um, but you know, maybe you can verify this. My my kempo instructor, my awareness of combat really comes from my martial arts practice, uh-huh. and he said he always wanted us to be desensitized to violence, but hypersensitized to right and wrong. So be absolutely willing to act if you have sure. to, but don't enjoy the harm that you cause someone. Well, and that's why, you know, we talk about a values-based organization. Uh, you know, the military, each service has got its own values. But, uh, you know, there's, there's uh, uh, no joy uh, in, in really causing harm to folks. I think there's a it's, – you talk to folks – I mean, I, I had this one tour where I was getting shot at, uh, and it really was pretty – tame compared to others experience certainly in afghanistan after we were there and iraq and everything like that but you know we had i don't know 15 20 rocket attacks where rockets are falling around you and you're scared and you're hiding you don't know what's going on you don't know what's coming next um and and and, you know the flip side of that is you know you know being in a place to to harm somebody but the, the the values that you bring to it is what makes the difference. I mean, if you're just a mercenary and you're just trying to kill for the sake of, of uh, you know making profit or or some other agenda, you know that's a that's a, that's not the American way. At least not the way that I know. We we have this capability that the American taxpayers fund to give us the best we have in the world, and we hope we don't have to use it. But we're going to do it if you get in our way. Right. And I think if it's, you, interesting if you ever have a chance to talk to other people's militaries, maybe right. French or British or Germans, and then ask them about how Americans are, you might I'd be interested to hear what their stories are because I think that they they probably think the same way that you know some definitely some similar values uh, uh, about what the purpose of a military is and how it should be used. Well, and I, I I don't I don't fear the person. <laughs> Who's willing to do violence? I fear the person who doesn't uh, have a governor on how they conduct <laughs> right. themselves. Right. You know, it's 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 why. Um, and and th- this is actually kind of brings up another thing I wanted to ask you about because the the quality of training, obviously, that the U.S. military has is is pretty phenomenal. Um, my scariest experience uh, 
uh, when I, you know, I've been doing martial arts for a little over 15 years and my, I'm not afraid to work with a brand new black belt from another gym. I'm more afraid to work with the, the, you know, strong wrestler that maybe, mm. but doesn't have any real martial arts training. He's just a big guy who's been in a couple of brawls mm-hmm. and doesn't know how to train safely. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, my, my thought is that, that, that unpredictability and lack of kind of measure to his actions, you know, similarly on, on a more grander scale, when the stakes are higher in the military, I wonder if when you're engaging with people who aren't as well-trained, maybe are more likely to be spooked, you know, that kind of thing. Is that come into play? Would you rather, I don't know. Cause obviously if they're trying to kill you, you don't want them too well-trained, but no. <laughs> well, so I'm not you, sure if you understand where I'm going with that. No, though, so, so I think that's, uh, again, I go back to what I said earlier. I think we just suck less than others uh, <laughs> when it comes to making things happen. And we're pretty good. I mean, I'm, I'm being flippant. No, I'm sure good. there's a little bit of tongue in cheek in there. And for a sure. fully trained, you know, combat arms unit, military battalion, uh, you know, attack helicopter battalion. They're really good at, at destroying things and, and tearing things up. We have really good folks who make logistics happen. And if you look at the problem, what's really why we're still in Afghanistan, it's not the fighting part. It's that right. the Afghans are struggling to get the logistics together to, to support themselves in the field. Uh, and so those folks are really important to make it all happen. Right. So, so, uh, but I think, uh, one of the things that we are really good is in the U.S. military and certainly the Army and certainly Special Forces is a thing called Mission Command. And Mission Command is a way of doing business where you give somebody uh, the intent of what you want and you give them an end state, give them some resources, make sure to give a brief back to know that you the, mis- the mission's been received, and then turn them loose. And that gives that uh, leader – the ability to make decisions within left and right limits uh, and, and and be innovative because you can't always predict what's going to happen in war. Sure. You can't predict what's going to happen, but you give the leader on the ground the autonomy and the authority to make some decisions, and you're going to get an effect. And that, that's a German – it's Ostragstaktik is the term the Germans use, but we stole it from them and made it our own. We call it mission command. And the most effective militaries in the, in the world uh, are the ones that – Build leaders who can operate autonomously in the way I just described. I'm glad you brought that up too, because I was the other question I was I was thinking about. Again, not somebody who's ever served. I don't have that in glance or understanding. You know, there's that thought as, oh, well, you know, soldiers, Marines, etc. They're they're taught to uh, to follow orders. But and and while it's probably true, because you don't want to have yeah, sure. you know yeah. somebody's like you know, but that built in method of being able to think creatively when you have to. And, yeah. and so that dynamic of being a good uh, leader of yourself, right? So that you follow the orders that are given to you, but still have that creativity and awareness to make decisions when it's on you to make those choices. Sure. Well, I'll tell you, one of the interesting stories that you're always told in training is about the Germans and their their perspective in World War II on Americans. And, and their common complaint was, Americans don't even follow their own doctrine. So how are we supposed to fight them uh, to train how to fight them? And so, so that's a, that's an American thing for sure that, uh, but it's all about 
you know, that kind of rugged individual that, uh, you know, I'm going to solve this problem and get things done. And yes, there's limits, there's laws. You can't, I mean, there's values, there's sure. all kinds of international conventions and everything right? that, that gets you to be, you know, doing the right thing. But we give a lot of autonomy, uh, for, for leaders to be able to make things said. Now, when they say go, you know, then you got to do it. Right. And that whole training kicks in the whole, I got an order. I got to do this thing comes in. And we're not, you know, there's a, there's a, some art there, you know, we have the science of doctrine, but we have this operational art where people just kind of learn how to interact and where the finesse is and, and those kinds of things. So I got to ask you about some of the other nicknames, uh, fuzzy (laughs) slippers. Ah, so, uh, so that's a battalion (laughs) commander, right? So battalion commander, uh, made the mistake of, of, uh, (laughs) at some point, some stand up meeting, uh, happened and he had to come out of his quarters and come to the operations center and he had was wearing uh some i think they were pink i can't remember the color they might have been green so like the like the bunny slippers or something like fuzzy that or slippers <laughs> right and so that name kind of stuck so uh that was a pretty funny one i try to be creative on that uh you know sure. a lot of these guys again haven't disclosed who they are and i'm not going to dime them out if absolutely but it, it certainly makes for more of an entertaining read you know, I mean, uh, when you, you have sort of a, a comical nickname and you, it's a background and everything. Well, and Almost all of them come from some kind of story. So this is one of the guys I call Stoneheart. And uh, uh, he's one of the most capable, awesome guys that uh, I've ever worked with. I spent a lot of time outside the wire. You know, with my job, uh, I, I was outside usually, a lot of times in civilian clothes, usually with one other guy and going driving into town. Well, fully armed, box of grenades in the back, sometimes a backpack full of money. Uh, but you know, just roaming around with one other guy and, and, and Stoneheart was one of those guys. Well, the, the reason that that name came to him was, um, almost always we'd have an interpreter with us at, at some point, my Dari got enough to be able to be functional out on town, speaking and listening. I okay. could buy some stuff. I could tell people it's too too costly. Yeah, but not that good at it. But most of the time, we had interpreters with us, and we nickname for them we'd call them Terps. And so I can remember being out with uh, Stoneheart one day, and I can't remember exactly what we were doing, but we were out um, uh, interacting with some merchant, and the the guy was. Um, uh, trying to negotiate down or up some price that we were trying to buy something. And Stoneheart says, look, you don't understand. I have a, a heart of a small black stone. I don't care about your children. And he's being very flippant about this whole thing, but the guy doesn't know this. Right. And so he just has this long, uh, uh, liturgy of how evil he is and how, you know, he doesn't care about him. And it was hilarious i mean i was just dying laughing as he's telling this guy and he, and he tells the interpreter don't tell him that exactly that and so the guy you know took it to heart for a minute and you could see him looking like is this really happening and there's something about to happen here and then at some point you know we had to let him off the hook a little bit and say okay but, but that's where <laughs> that's where stoneheart came from so tufan tufan is the door this dari name for the wind tufan was another running buddy of mine that right. uh uh, this for storm, I should say. Uh, and so he, he wanted to, to name himself the storm and, and, and everybody kind of had a war name to use with the Afghans. I don't know why they liked it. Uh, the one that they gave me was, uh, Shere Khan, which, uh, okay. I was wondering about how that came through. Cause, uh, you yeah. know, I grew up with the jungle book when I was back, yeah, back when right. I was a young kid. Well, so Dari, it means lion King, right? It's the same thing. So, so Shere Khan, uh, uh, Shere's lion and Khan is the king. So, 
that's the one that the, I was teaching a class one day and they're like, what's your name? I'm like, ah, uh, you know, Colonel, actually in time, Major Redding. No, no, no. What's your name? Give us a name. I'm like, I don't know. And so one of the interpreters just made one up on the spot. I'm like, okay, sounds good to me. <laughs> stuck. So, stuck. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so so I, I use that 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 way of uh, kind of telling a story to keep it interesting, and you know the whole thing is just you know you can always talk about going and shooting something or blowing up a bunker or whatever. You won't find any of those kind of stories with us. I mean, I, with it with with my uh, with my blog or what I don't know what you call it. It's hard to, to I guess it's just a, you're, you're kind of doing something a little bit innovative. It's it's blog ish and yeah, sort yeah. of multimedia. You know, part of that so. was because there's no mechanism. It's the easiest mechanism for putting something on the web is use a, sure. a blog engine to do that. So that's kind of what I did, but uh, uh, yeah, just making some of the good stories out there, making sure that uh, folks know that uh, uh, what we did in these these really interesting times, and uh, uh, it wasn't just us sitting around twiddling thumbs. We actually did some some pretty interesting. Yeah, well, and it brings in humanity to it, right? Like, it, like I think again, you know, we talked about the at the beginning of this that being able to not think of the troops abstractly. Sure. That these are real people that went over there that experienced real things, and yeah. and it's nice to to get that too. And, and you didn't shy away from this, and I don't want to be respectful of your time and everything, but you didn't you didn't shy away from the mental health fatigue. Um, but yeah. there's more to your um, to your stories than just that. A lot of times, whenever we, meaning civilians, hear about the the individual hum- human stories of our servicemen and women it's usually within the context of what they've had to go through and in yeah. a very negative way in a very, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, an adaptive surfer. So there are a lot of people that, you know, that I surf with, that, you know, maybe they lost a limb or whatever, like right. one of my, uh, you know, and they served over there or whatever you hear stuff like that or feel, hear things about PTSD. But one of the things that's really cool about your stories is that you offer that humanity aspect without it necessarily being, this person permanently affected for the rest of their life in a negative way. And I, I think that we get this sort of misperception that everybody that comes back from, from, I mean, obviously war is not a, you said it's never a good thing, or at least yeah. you said something to that effect, but not everybody who comes back from war is as negatively impacted in quite the same way or even but as severely. It definitely changes you. And some of it's growing up, some of it's maturity, some of it's just the process of life. Uh, you know, it's one of the things you don't know until you've done it, how you're going to react to the situations. And, sure. you know, mine, um, you know, uh, that's one of the struggles the military has is dealing with mental health issues. And there's a whole lot of resources, but there's a whole lot of stigma and it's not fully resolved in how that plays out. Yeah. Uh, you know, senior leaders, if you look these days are really trying to get out that, Hey, I'm looking for help or I've done this and do this. And that's a normal part of, of responding to something you may or may not have happened to you. You know, my, my experience was that, um, you know, the front half, it's like an adventure, right? It was awesome. You know, nobody's getting shot at really. We had some rockets thrown at us, but it's a little bit scary, but we're doing our jobs. And then, right. you know, there was something that clicked and some of it was, you know, the buildup for Iraq was happening while we were there. And we right. Yeah. Because you said you left in 2003, I think, initially. At, so we then, got there in August, yeah. uh, August, September 2002. We left in April 2003. Well, you know, the whole Iraq thing built up and happened while we were in Afghanistan. March 19th, 2003, I think, was the official yeah. date of the offensive. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so we kept hearing 
we're not sure when you're going to go home. It may be in a month. It may be in a year. Or yeah, we don't know. And you actually we- made a comment to that in one in the, one of the articles that I, the stories that I read, where somebody was thinking June, but somebody thought it was sooner than that. And you were making a comment about the negative impact on morale oh, that would have. Oh gosh, yeah. Well, and 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 you don't know how you react to that until it happens to you, right? And so, so what happened to me? Uh, you know, we we had a, a period where. There's uh, a lot of work going on, and then there was a lull, and then had a little bit of time off, and then all of a sudden you had this ambiguous amount of time in front of you, and you know I got two and three year old boys at home. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm talking to them once a week on this very crackly phone line and emailing occasionally, uh, and, and you miss them, right? And 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 then you're you know dealing with all of that, and until you've done it, you just don't know how you're going to react. And for me. I mean, I, I had probably some anxiety. I had some sleep issues. I managed it. I figured out, I finally figured myself out. But until you've been there, sure, you, you just don't know. And so, so you know, we had chapel there. Andy was very good about getting folks out. A lot of, lot of buddy, uh, I'd say getting folks out. He was really good about uh, making sure that there was an ability to get some help for folks. Um, uh, it's good. You know, spiritually and, uh, you know, buddy teams, folks checking up at each other. That's one thing about being on a team is people are always trying to help each other out. So people know if you're, you know, if there's something up uh, and they'll, you know, they'll approach you. And- is there hesitancy? I mean, I don't, I don't want to belabor this because it's in the focus of your, or your page so much, I guess. But do you think that some guys, like, especially if they want to stay active, they don't ask for help because they're afraid that means they're going to have to go home? 100%. And, and it, it shows itself in different places, right? Security clearance is a big thing. Uh, folks who have a job that requires a security clearance, there's, sure. you know, for some reason we keep saying it's okay to seek mental health, but if you seek mental health and it's on your record, then it's something you have to explain and it may not go the way you want when you try to explain it. I mean, people are worried that it's going to end their military career. If, yeah. if they want to go in for their full, their 20 yeah. or more years, they don't yeah. want to say, hey, I can't sleep at night and I'm having nightmares because yeah. they're afraid that somebody's going to think they're going to, be unstable and hurt someone or whatever. Right. And it's all that. And really in the end, it's about getting the mission done. Right. And so we like to think we give people opportunities. We give them all this cool experience and training, but in the end, the organization, the U S army must get its job done. Right. And so, uh, you know, for example, you know, you as a blind man cannot serve in the army. Well, there's a reason why, but there's other, Hey, I'm not offended. There's other things I can do to serve this country. hundred percent. Right. And, but there's, but there's other things that folks have determined, you know, Based on on uh, you know what you need to be able to do in you know in a warlike situation that you can't have uh, be in the way and and it's not yep. a it's not a judgment it just is sure. uh, and so and so that's that this mental health thing somehow fell into this pile of well perhaps it's a problem and I think um, there's probably a better way to handle it so. Sure, um, I always want to try to make sure and the the beautiful thing about you know, podcast versus, you know, I mean, you have more produced podcasts, I suppose, from time to time. But I like to always make sure that uh, if a guest hasn't gotten to something or a story that you specifically want to share or any, I mean, uh, want to make sure we get to that before we kind of end sure. things. Well, I got a bunch of stories. I'll, I'll end up with one, but there's, you know, there's all kinds of stories about the time I was out with a, you know, counterintelligence agents that we were doing a roadside stop. We ended up in the den of one of the you know, the enemy groups and, and they knew it and we knew it, but we all pretended like we didn't. Right, that's a pretty good story, but a little bit belabored. Yeah. 
if, if you have the time for it, I think we have the time to go. I have, I have one, one, one big story that I'll tell you. Okay. But just I mean, right. at the time I almost drowned in a rowboat with, uh, you know, with uh, one of the Afghan battalion commanders. And, All right. And it, it, it sounds like there's something in. there. Uh, the time that, uh, you know, I've probably came across one of the most uh, energetic rave parties at the DHL guest house in downtown Kabul. <laughs> Uh, the, I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Uh, but the one I really want to talk about is, uh, okay. is, uh, something that's just unbelievable. So, so, you know, part of my job, again, making relationships and then connecting the dots on making things happen. And sometimes it related directly to the mission. Sometimes it was just to do good things and you get that credit for, you know, America or whatever. And so one of the relationships we made through, uh, this morning star development group and a guy named Daniel who ran the place who didn't live in Afghanistan, but he'd come for six to eight weeks at a time uh, was with uh, uh, a um, organization that was a, again, faith-based uh, non-governmental organization called, uh, I think it's newer Institute, newer eye hospital okay. uh, as an American uh, it's not an organization I personally know, but um, there's a whole bunch. I yeah. may have it may have changed over time, but yeah. uh, I write a, I write a, uh, one of my posts about Tom, and you can read about him in a minute. But okay. Tom's running the place, so Tom uh, is is uh, helping people get their eyes fixed. Uh, and, the, and the typical way that faith based organizations work, uh, particularly in a place where it's a little like bit glasses and stuff, or, yeah. or more well, serious surgeries and doing whatever. Oh, okay. Okay. But they do the good thing, right? I mean, they just do the good thing and they just let it sit. And then somebody asks, why are you doing this? Then they'll maybe have a conversation about their faith or something like that, right? But that's uh, sort of that St. Patrick, uh, that St. Patrick build uh, earthly value uh, approach. Sure. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. So, so this existing place so is, is there and I find this relationship and, and, and uh, again, just an interesting national guardism, right? So in a normal, uh, uh, special forces battalion, the regular army, the, you know, we all have, a, we have a big medical staff relatively. So we got a physician, we got a physician's assistant, got a lot of medics and the uh, special forces medic, you know, their MOS 18 Delta, most capable non-physician for emergency medicine and veterinary medicine and preventive medicine on the, on the planet. Right. Great guys right. know how to do a lot of stuff. Well, so we have all that. Plus, uh, some other interesting things. So it just happened that our battalion surgeon, who's Doc Ends, and you could find him. He's out, he's okay. out there. Uh, he's in, in one of my articles. Um, Doc Ends uh, is uh, a pediatric ophthalmologist in a civilian job. So not just a you know family practice physician, and not right. Just That's his his specialty is his specialty ophthalmology. Yeah. Is pediatric ophthalmology, world right. class ophthalmology. So. So anyway, so we're we're connecting the dots on this, and and at some time previous to this, uh, Doc Ends had been, you know, figured, you know, all the docs all know each other once they get in the country, and he had been called up to do some interesting things. One of them was to um, he reconstructed uh, a child who had been injured in a a blast. He reconstructed the kid's eyelid from his foreskin. Uh, oh wow! Okay, right? yeah. Well, it's it's, it's kind of yeah. similar. Skin time. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, but again, solving problems, making things happen. Nobody within two thousand miles could figure could have done that except for Doc Yens, right? So, so this other story. So That's we, creativity so, in medicine for sure. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, so we get an agreement with the Newer Eyes Hospital 
uh, that uh, we're going to uh, get Doc Inns in. He's going to do – he's a he's a uh, not just a doctor, but he's a you know, part of a university hospital, so he's a professor too. He likes teaching, loves training and teaching people, loves sure. teaching people how to be good medical. Sounds coaches. like a pretty stand-up guy all, awesome. all, thing, all around. Yeah, so – so, uh, so we're going to save up his, his specialty is strabismus. Are you familiar with strabismus? So crossed uh, eyes, right? So uh, he oh, okay. makes Got his it. crossed eyes. Yep. That's his specialty. And he has sure. this world-class technique. He's put in, published in medical journals and all this stuff. And so, so he, uh, uh, asked Tom to save up some, uh, some strabismus cases and he's going to fix them and he's going to train the doctors who are there, Afghan doctors about his special technique. And it's all going to be something right. cool. And so the day comes and, <laughs> and, uh, uh, the three of us go out there. So it's doc ends, uh, a guy named, uh, uh, uh so I forget what, uh, I don't know if I gave him a code name. I'll just call him Dean. So Dean is, uh, uh, associated with the, medical eye industry i think currently he's a uh, a president like right now he's a president of an eye lions eye bank someplace uh and me and so we go we're going to scrub in i'm going to take pictures i'm going to write a story uh to get it published Dawkins is going to do stuff and uh, uh dean's gonna uh, uh help uh, his buddy Dawkins uh, do the surgery so sure so we get there we get all scrubbed in uh and it's a very it's a pretty austere but functional surgery theater um, it's not like you would find in America. It's probably 60s technology and such. So, so, anyway, so we get but all at least in. sterile and functional. And yeah, all it's, that. It's, yeah, yeah, they're doing surgeries there every day. So it's nothing, you know, it's nothing. It's not, uh, you know, it's it's not the Mayo Clinic, but it's it's doing all right. So, so um, anyway, so so it just happens that day that uh, not all the normal doctors are there. And so they have a a uh, anesthesiologist who's who's come from the main hospital he's not from newer but all the other docs from newer are there and they're all eye doctors and so doc ends is is getting them all trained up and are sketching out what he's going to do uh, i'm in there taking pictures uh and uh dean's helping and so uh, uh at some point i hear uh, a feminine scream from out in the hallway uh and then it's quiet and uh the doors open up and a man carries in this uh, appears to be a teenage uh, girl and well, she's the first patient. So they had given her some sedative out in the hallway <laughs> and then brought her in uh, later on the operating table and then uh, proceeded the uh, anesthesiologist proceeded to, uh, to give her general anesthetic because you have to do this procedure under that. Sure. So we're off to the races, right? So, so uh, ends is over the talking to the docs, the, the uh, girls intubated and um, I've taken pictures uh, and we're getting ready to go, and uh, all of a sudden we notice this commotion over by the table, uh, and the table uh, with, the, with the girl on it. And uh, uh, Afghans, I don't, you know, I don't understand what they're saying. I don't have an interpreter with me, uh, but there's clearly something wrong. And as I look over, I can see um, that the girl is cyanotic, right? So she's got a waxy blue skin, and I'm like, huh? Oh, I don't know yeah. if that's supposed to be happening. Yeah. And so. Wow. Uh, so the docs are getting a little animated. They're trying to see what's going on. Uh, the uh, 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 ends and hour comes back over to me. Doc ends comes back over to me, and he's kind of sitting there. We're watching what's going on because there's no business for us to do the the life saving right. things that are going on. The docs are are doing it. Well, Tom comes in. Tom says, "Well, I'm not sure what's going on, but I'm going to put a fresh bottle of oxygen on her." And so he's working to swap this out. Well, at this point, there's chest compressions going on. They've got a bag yeah, yeah, on the yeah, innervation yeah. tube. And we're like, yeah. wow, this is not 
it's what not we supposed to be happening. Yeah, it's going to happen here. So, so we're you know we're a little bit stunned, and and, and frankly, this is not my environment. You know, the two medical right. Guys you're are observing like, and trying I'm, to yeah, assist like, a little bit, I guess. But I'm a little bit you know weak in the knees here because it's <laughs> not my thing, right? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway, but I, and I stopped taking pictures. I wish I, I wish I hadn't because uh, uh, an interesting thing happens. But anyway, so so the 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 oxygen bottle gets changed over, and uh, and uh, the young lady uh, begins to pink up, and uh, she begins to heave a little bit. So I find out later that uh, uh, a person. And this is probably seven eight minutes into the incident, right? So. So she appears to have been cyanotic for seven, eight minutes. Oh, geez. Uh, and so and you, like, you can have brain dead. damage after that right. short period yeah. of time. Can't exactly. Yeah. Right. So, but apparently uh, an intubated person who's not brain dead uh, and comes out of anesthetic feels it and begins gagging. And so her chest is heaving because she feels the tube in her chest. So she's not brain dead. Oh, I've actually had that. I, I woke up from a surgery. Not that, like that severe, but I, I woke up uh, just as they were taking a breathing tube out one time. It was rather unpleasant. Right. Well, <laughs> so unpleasant for her too. But at this point, she's not fully there and she doesn't have a pulse. Right. So Oof. so it's not. this is not all good. So out yeah, of yeah. the scrum that's leaning over her, one of the Afghan doctors – uh, runs over to a set of appliances that are over to to my right as I'm looking straight at her. It's over at the other end of the, of the operating room, and he pulls this appliance around and he pulls out uh, the electrical cord to it. And as he's stripping the insulation off the two pulled out ends to get two live wires out and pulling it apart for for paddles for for resuscitation, he or? goes and plugs in the wire into the wall socket it says the after the dari equivalent of clear and shocks the girl to get her pulse back i i was uh, unbelievable i, 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 I mean it, you just can't make that up right oh okay now i think i got what you're saying he, he so he took the electrical cl- cord out and used that cuz you didn't have normal he paddles. didn't have paddles no no there's no right. there's none of that resuscitative equipment there so oh, he just geez. figured it out, made it happen. Well, <laughs> so I'm like, and I, at this point, I think there's free flowing oxygen in the room, and he's about to spark it. So I've got my face kind of down in my in my shirt, and I'm kind of covered oh, sure. up because I think we're sure. going to have a flash fire or something. Well, so anyway, so that that wraps up. Well, well, the the fortunate thing that happened was offset by the unfortunate aspect, which is the the anesthesiologist did not know. Uh, and this could never happen in an American hospital because of the way that the the fittings are. That he had actually hooked up the young lady to a CO2 bottle. Oh my gosh! So in operating theater, CO2 is used to operate uh, operating machinery because uh, right, it's inert right. and doesn't spark or whatever. Right. And the in the U.S., you can't physically attack those. Put right. Those because fittings the, together. the the valves are different. The fittings just don't fit. Right. right? Exactly. Well. So he had free float CO2, 100% CO2 into this girl. Uh, oh, through her uh, her anesthesia rig. <laughs> yeah, that was that was the oh that my was the, gosh. that was the gas he was giving her. So wow. anyway, so I like to tell it. You know, later on we heard the girl talking. So 
you know. Uh, okay, so she came through without she any. She came uh, through it with her effects. talking to her dollar in Afghanistan at the time, at least. You know, uh, oh you just get your, you know you get your do- your daughter back and in the U.S. That'd be a multi-million dollar lawsuit, right? Are you kidding? Like, <laughs> like, like, I was just thinking about. I mean, I, I mean, I just had hernia surgery and like it was nothing. You know, like no yeah. big deal. Like a few months ago, but I, just even the possible like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> if anything had gone wrong, even still, you know, I mean, wow, that that's crazy. Well, it's just nuts. again one of those crazy stories that I thought needed telling, and it's and you it's got to be a witness to, so. you know. Yeah, and, and thankfully, it has a happy ending, you know. Yeah, that was interesting. So, hey, well, well Colonel, uh, I I think we've we've had a significant amount of time here. I really appreciate this conversation. This was uh, really a uh, really good exchange, and I, hopefully, people get a little bit of a glimpse on. Uh, you know, a little more human context that isn't just people talking about combat missions, which that has its place, of course, but yeah, well, I'll tell you, so, so, uh, I'll just throw it out there. Fly fishing in Afghanistan.com. I'm not making any money off it. There's no nothing except for, it's just a way to get the story out. So, you definitely have enough in here that you could write a book if you ever chose to do that. Well, we'll see where that goes. I, you know, my, I, I, uh, I need to talk about it with my family because I, you know, again, the, the whole purpose of this was just to put it all together and, sure. it, and it's taken me this long. And actually I'm not done yet. I still have another month or two's worth of journal to get through. I hope to get that done here in the next couple of months, but it's really, it's kind of draining on me because I didn't capture everything in the journal. I put things together based on what happened uh, with the pictures that sometimes I didn't right. annotate. So it takes some, it takes some effort and some time, but I hope sure. to get it done here this year. But uh, I hope that folks uh, look at it and, and take something away and just know that uh, you know there's folks out here who uh, you know it's not, it's it's a profession, but it's not their job, right? I mean, National Guard right. and reservists uh, uh, go out and do stuff because uh, they want to. And it was, and this the, the to compare that also gets that this this crazy time in Afghanistan where it was the Wild West, and um, you know we could do some very interesting things. And interesting things were happening, and you know, folks kind of liked us still at the time, and we had high hopes that it was all going to come to an end pretty quick. Eighteen years ago. <laughs> <laughs> time, yeah, timing is not whatever whatever you expect it to be. So, yeah. uh, and I know you're active on Twitter. Or at least you post your your articles there. Uh, what's is that your primary social media? If anybody so, wants to so usually it? I uh, whenever I make a post on the web page, I'll post it to Facebook. There's that's also on Facebook and also on Twitter. Uh, and I try to do a little bit of a thread of, uh, of interesting Afghan things that are all about really Afghanistan rebuilding. You know, one of the things is. Uh, I have a soft part in my heart uh, for the interpreters that were with us because they put everything on the line to make sure we were able to do our business. And, and really the, the, those, some of those folks haven't been taken care of and they risked everything to make it help for us. So if I find some stuff like that or some other good stories about Afghanistan, cool. I'll, I'll, I'll also retweet those. But generally I'm just letting folks know that there's a, uh, a new post in and they can go enjoy it at their leisure. Excellent. So, and then all the links to your different social media right there off your website. Yep. All, all there. Right. So, fl- uh, flyfishinginafghanistan.com. That's the one. And for those of us who, who stumble over Afghanistan, uh, uh, put you on the spot, would you mind spelling it for w- one time? <laughs> as silly as that sounds, because like, I got to look at it. And I, I, I've read it, I don't even know how many times. Uh, so, uh, uh, let's see here. I'm going to. Hey, hey, if you have to pull up your own website, that's totally fine. No shame in that. G-H-A-N-I-S-T-A-N. All right. Afghanistan is how they would say it there. 
Yeah, well, all right. Well, well, Colonel Redding, thank you so much for coming on the show. And for everyone listening, adventure is a state of mind. How you live it is up to you. Yeah.